If you are willing and able, uh, would you please stand out of respect for God's words to us as I read our passage on which our sermon is based today from the Gospel of Mark. Friends, these words are utterly true and given to us in love. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with this man? You call the king of the Jews. And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scored Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to say hi uh, to everyone here on campus. Those of you joining us online, great to be together today and this Sunday. Uh, If you're new with us today, I'm really glad that you are here. We are in a sermon series called Unrelenting Rescue, where we find ourselves in this church season called Lent. It's 40 days uh, leading up to Easter, where we will journey with Jesus to the cross, these various encounters that he will have with people uh, as he seeks to rescue us sinners saved by grace. And today we come to an encounter and really to an encounter with a very provocative word in our culture today, a word that provokes a lot of emotion for all of us here. And it is the word truth, truth. In our modern culture and very much alive today in a city like Orlando, there is this implied understanding that truth is what you make of it. Truth is what works for you. This question has not only been difficult for us to answer in our modern culture, much like a city like Orlando, but it was difficult to answer even in the first century. Uh, In fact, this same story, the same encounter with Pilate uh, in the gospel of John, John gives his account of this encounter. And and, uh, in this moment, Pilate has this question for Jesus. He's asking him this question right there in the gospel of John, this same question. The question is simply this, what is truth? What is truth, Jesus? How do we make sense of truth in our modern culture? Three invitations that we'll need to see today from our passage on Pilate and Barabbas. First, the importance of truth. Second, the distortion of truth. And finally, the fulfillment of truth. Let's look first at the importance of truth. And we see how important truth is right here in this passage in Mark that was read. Jesus has been brought to Pilate on trumped up 
charges. Um, the religious leaders had to bring Jesus through the Roman system. Their laws were forbidding them from actually carrying out their death sentence on Jesus on their own. They, they, they had to take all of their accusations, all uh, the things that they were trying to bring as charges against Jesus through the Roman system. That's why he is standing before Pilate. Pilate had to be involved if they wanted to get rid of Jesus. If Jesus was going to be killed, it had to go through Pilate. So they bring Jesus before him. And this is what we read at the beginning of our encounter in verse two. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. Pilate asks this very direct question, very direct to Jesus. And what we see from Jesus is an affirmation, but not a direct affirmation and definitely not a blatant denial. In fact, commentators agree that this Greek construction to this phrase that Jesus gives us spells out the importance of truth. Commentators agree that Jesus's response was essentially this Pilate, Pilate, you would do well to consider that question. Uh, Pilate, you, you, you would be do well to answer that question for yourself. Pilate, have you come to grips with truth and who I am? Friends, don't you see, we need truth. Now, probably more than ever in our modern world, it's how we make sense of the world. It's, it's how we make sense of reality. What is truth? What is truth? That's the great question Pilate has. And Jesus to Pilate and to us this morning is asking us, you would do well to consider the question. You would do well to consider and provide an answer. But how do we miss the truth? How, how do we miss it? Where do we go wrong? How did Barabbas miss it? How did Pilate miss it? Well, that's the second thing. That's a second invitation, the distortion of truth, the distortion of truth. And what we see in our passage from Pilate and from Barabbas is what I would call the progressive distortion and the conservative distortion of truth. They, they both miss it on opposite sides. Let's look first at the progressive distortion of truth. What, what I would say is how we moderate the truth. We moderate it. You see, there's some of you here, maybe online. There's some of you, you you're the second I brought up truth. You, you began squirming in your chairs. <laughs> you, 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 well, what is this that we're going to talk about today? You, you, you may even be thinking, Tyler, I don't agree with you about this. I have a lot of questions about this. I, I think there are many different ways to God, many different answers to truth. Uh, this is a very common objection people have to Christianity, a uh, common objections people have. Um, basically, the premise is I, I can't determine what someone else's truth is for them. That would be arrogant. Maybe that's you this morning. Uh, it, some other ways that you hear it, I hear it this way. People, people will say, you know, th those, those ancient people, God bless them. They, you know, they had a very small world that they lived in. But, but now, but now us modern people, we're so much more educated, so much more civilized. Uh, maybe that's you. What I want you to know is the same way of dealing with truth that happens in our modern culture happened in ancient cultures too. You see, commentators all agree that Pilate knows exactly what he is doing in this passage. Pilate believes Jesus is innocent. He believes Jesus has been brought to him on trumped up charges but Pilate does not want to risk 
being outed for what he truly believes. He says, he's thinking, if I don't play my cards right, this could go bad for my career. If I don't play my cards right, it could be bad for my family, it could be bad for our financial well-being. And so, and so, this is what we read in our passage from verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate moderates the truth to satisfy the crowds. You have your truth. I'll have my truth. We'll go our separate ways. But this is the great distortion of truth. We moderate it. We we don't let truth shape us. We don't let truth ground us in reality. C.S. Lewis wrote a, a great book called The Screwtape Letters. And if you've never read it, it's a fictional account where uh, Screwtape, who is the, the, the archdemon, is writing letters back and forth with his nephew, Wormwood, who is a junior demon or junior devil. And th- they are going back in correspondence, these letters, on how they tempt the patient, the patient, which is Christians. How do, how do, they, how do they work with the patient? And if you've never read the book, I encourage you to read it. But in this story, one of the letters, uh, Screwtape explained one of the best ways to tempt the patient, the Christian, is not with full cell rejection of faith. No, no, too easy, too easy. But screw tape is let them moderate the truth. Let them believe that the old way of thinking about life was, is, is wrong, and now we need a more accepting, diverse view of reality. This is what it says. Talk to him about, quote, moderation, in all things. If you can get him at, to the point of thinking that, quote, religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all and more amusing. Now, I know some of you are thinking, Tyler, we can't know the truth. We, 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 can't, know, we can't know all the views about God in reality. That's arrogant. We have to be more accepting. We have to see God like the blind man and the elephant. We have to see that truth, there's truth out there. We have some truth, but there are others that have other truth, but we don't have the whole view of truth. We have to see God with more grace. That would be arrogant to talk that way. Have you heard of the blind man and the elephant? British theologian Leslie Newbegin spent time living in India, and he heard this fable a lot. It's the fable of the blind man and the elephant. It was the way that they talked about reality and and truth. And and this is kind of how the fable would go. The the first blind man uh, put out his hand, and he touched the trunk of the elephant. And as he touched the trunk, he said, oh, how round, how round is this trunk? The elephant is like a snake. God is like a snake. He took the second blind man, put out his hand. He touched the tusk of the elephant. Oh, how sharp the elephant is like a spear. God must be like a spear. The third blind man put out his hand. He touched the leg of the elephant. How tall the elephant is like a tree. God must be like a tree. Maybe you've heard this. The response of these Indians had to exclusive truth claims was to moderate the truth. We can't know all truth. We can't know all reality. We can only know parts. We're blind men. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. 
But listen to Leslie Newbegin's response. And I, I confess it's a little dense, the quote, but I'll, I'll work through it afterwards. He says this. The story is told from the point of view of the king and his aristocrats who are not blind, but can see that the blind men are only grasping for the full reality of the elephant and are only able to get hold of part of the truth. The story is constantly told in order to neutralize the affirmation of the great religions to suggest that they learn humility and recognize that none of them can have more than one aspect of the truth. But of course, the real point of the story is exactly the opposite. If the king were also blind, there would be no story. The story is told by the king, and it is immensely arrogant claim of one who sees the full truth, which all the world's religions are only groping after. It embodies the claim to know the full reality, which relativizes all the claims of the religions and philosophies. I know that was an incredibly dense quote, but let me unpack it for you. Here's what he's saying. New begins saying the person who moderates the truth by saying we can't know the truth because we can't fully see like the blind man is saying that they are the only one with the enlightened vantage point to see the whole elephant. What they're essentially saying is that no one can see the whole elephant, but them. No one can see the whole elephant, but them, you, you are the blind man, but I can see the whole elephant. It passes as humility, but at its core is an incredibly arrogant statement about reality. I know what reality is, but you don't. I can see the whole elephant, but you are blind. Here's another way I hear people talk about it today. Someone says to me, oh, I don't believe in exclusive truth claims, Tyler. Don't believe in them. What they don't realize is they are making an exclusive truth claim to silence all others. Some will say to me, Tyler, I am spirit, spiritual, very, very, very spiritual, but I don't believe in doctrine. But you can see that you're moderating the truth because that very statement is what a doctrine. We must name truth. It is good for us. I grew up in an age where everyone got a medal or a ribbon for anything they competed in. Even if they came in last place, anyone been there, we were in the self-esteem craze didn't want to make anyone feel bad. And I remember growing up and uh, I was swimming and I received a ribbon as a kid because I finished in seventh place. They used almost the entire color palette to make sure I got a ribbon. But needless to say, I did not stick with swimming because truth is important. Truth is good for me. Someone along the way said, Tyler, give it up. You're not going to be in the Olympics. Uh, my boys are too young to be involved in any sort of physical contact sport at, as of right now. Um, but one thing I know for sure is height is not on their side. I'm five, eight, but if my boys grow up and they come to me and they say, Hey dad, the, you know, at this point they're five, eight, maybe 120 pounds. And they say, dad, I really want to be an NFL player one day, an NFL football player. What do you, what do you think dad? At that point, I must tell them the truth. I must speak the truth in them to save their very life. What we choose with the progressive distortion of truth is grace without truth, grace without truth. But however hard it is, we try the truth haunts us. The truth haunts us and it's inescapable in our lives. We need it. But I know what some of you are thinking. That's right, Tyler. 
That's right. You tell them. You tell them about that truth. You, you, yes, yeah, go Tyler. You tell them about that truth. That's what I've been feeling all this time. Give them the truth. Thank you, Tyler. Well, I want to caution you because on the other side is what we see in our passage is the conservative distortion of truth. This could be called the abuse of truth. You see, on the other end of the social spectrum from Pilate is this man named Barabbas. Pilate is in the seat of power, moderating the truth. Barabbas is in chains, having given into the abuse of truth. What we learn from our passage, Mark tells us in verse seven, is that there was this insurrection. Uh, he doesn't go into much detail because I think everyone at that time knew what he was talking about. He said there was an insurrection and we don't have time to go into it as much today as I'd like, but this insurrection is coming from a reverberating story of Israel's history. The great story of the collective memory of the Maccabees led by Judas and Judas who had a nickname and it was the hammer. If that's not a great nickname, I cannot imagine Judas the hammer because 150 years before this encounter with Pilate and Barabbas, the Greeks ruled Israel and forbid worship of God. They forbid religious sacrifices. They forbid Sabbath observance. They literally brought an idol statue of Zeus into the middle of the temple for God's people to worship the statue. And in that moment, we see Judas saying enough is enough. Judas, the hammer led a great rebellion, earning the freedom through violence and insurrection. They believed in the truth. What was being asked of them was not right, but their only answer to that way of life was violence. And this is Barabbas's issue. He gave into the violence as the only answer. This is the distortion on the other side, the conservative distortion. We not only believe in the truth, we believe we are Judas the hammer. Uh, we believe that we have been sent by God to set all things right. And when I mean all things, I mean all people, all people. Sadly, we have to be honest about the history of the church that we as the church have fallen into this way more often than we'd care to admit. We've come to violence in the name of truth. We had the crusades. We had the witch trials. We had the medieval killings over different views of baptism and many more issues. The church has a checkered past and we have to admit this. In fact, the story is very much still under investigation coming out of Atlanta of the shootings is that what they do know is that the killer was a professing evangelical Christian. You may be here this morning and you may have experienced the abuse of the truth in your past through a church or church leader. And, and I, I, I'm sorry for that. I, I've experienced it myself. And we sadly, even today, we find that we wield this hammer of truth pretty destructively. Now, I can't imagine anyone in this room ever saying, I'm going to give myself to murder like Barabbas, but we find ourselves distorting the truth by how we abuse others in the process with it. We virtue signal on Facebook 
with those who don't agree with us. We, we find we're always ready for the next debate on the political argument or the pandemic discussion. We're always ready for the next debate, the next argument. When can I wield the hammer? The hammer. Here's a question for you this morning. When someone is having a conversation with you and they are taking the opposing view from where you sit and see things, do you find yourself in your head not really listening to them because you're already formulating in your mind your response? friend of yours are talking, you see things differently on an issue. They're sharing their side and rather engaging and listening to them. You're already, the wheels are turning. Okay. I'm going to say this. And I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this. Anyone done that besides me? You can tell you have this distortion of truth because people almost avoid bringing up any topic around you. They hide from you at Thanksgiving, literally hide from you. On the opposite side of the room, they don't want to hear you. They don't want to deal with the hammer. When we have this distortion of truth, we walk around and the subtext through which we communicate is simply this. I'm right. You're wrong. And don't you wish you were more like me? I'm right. You're wrong. (laughs) And don't you wish you were just a little more like me? Friends, this is the abuse of truth. It gets the value of truth, but there is no grace. The progressive distortion gets grace, but no truth. But but we can't live with truth and afflict harm on others in the process. I'm right. You're wrong. Don't you wish you were just a little more like me? I love the way Pastor Duke Kwan put it. He said it this way. It's impossible to love someone you disagree with when you secretly believe they need Jesus more than you do. Have you ever been prone to the hammer? Have you ever been prone to truth without grace? You see an encounter with truth, just, it doesn't make you more judgmental. It should make you more loving, more willing to lay down your rights for others, more willing to seek to understand and make room for others. Uh, I remember when Rachel and I were first married, we were, we were on our honeymoon and we were laying in one of those beach hammocks overlooking the ocean and the sun is setting on the grill, Jamaica, highly recommend it by the way. And we're sitting there. And in that moment, I had this, this incredible reality that fell in on my head and this, this crashing reality to the world that I was living in at the time. It was a new reality for me. I'd only been married for a couple of days and I just had this reality as we were laying on that hammock together, it just came crashing in on me. And it was this, I am no longer a single man. I, I am no longer a single man. I realized that my life and how I had lived it is over. It's over. I can't just show up at home whenever I want. I can't ghost her texts when she's texting me saying, what are you doing? Or when will you be home? Or when will you be home? Or when will you be home? (laughs) Truth now means I have to live differently. I have to live with a tenderness towards her, with a grace towards her. I have to live with the reality that I am no longer a single man. And I can't take that lightly. We have to come to grips 
with our part in distorting the truth. Whether we have been too gracious, truth is relative, or we've been too abusive. Where, where is my hammer? Which one are you? Which side do you fall off on? And frankly, if we're honest, we're probably a mix of both. But how do we embrace truth that does not moderate and truth that does not abuse? How do we do that? How do we become that kind of people? People blown through to the very core of grace and truth. Well, that's our final invitation, the fulfillment of truth. One of the stories that I love in the Bible that really gets at this issue of grace and truth is the story of the Israelites in the desert. Uh, I love the story because it's the perfect example of the human condition. Moses has gone up onto Mount Sinai to receive the two tablets of 10 commandments. And and while he is up there, uh, the people down at the base of the mountain are beginning to complain. What's taking him so long? They're asking questions of Aaron, uh, Moses' sidekick. What's taking him so long? What's he doing up there? Why why, why are we down here waiting so long? What, What happened to him? Aaron's response is, hey, 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 guys, got an idea. Give me your gold rings. Just give me your gold rings. And Aaron makes what is now called in the Bible, the golden calf. He constructs this calf out of gold that was meant to honor God. But God had actually told them just a few verses earlier, do not make an image to worship me. The people, God's people moderate the truth. They bend it. They manipulate it to what they want. And this is what some of us are doing. This, this may be an impulse you're feeling right now. It's tax season. It's tax season. You may be feeling that impulse. Ah, what's a few numbers here and there? Some of you, you do it with your golf game. Hey, what'd you get? Put me down for a five. I got an eight, but that makes me feel bad. So just put me down for a five. When we examine our work protocols, we find ourselves saying, oh, you know what I'm doing is not a big deal. These other people I work with, they have got such deceptive ways of working. They're they're the ones with the issues. We moderate what God has told us. All grace, but no truth. Now, while this is happening, Moses is up on the mountain. He is receiving the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. He's their leader. He he has come. He's grabbing the Ten Commandments. He leaves the mountain with the truth. He leaves the mountain with God's truth in his hands, God's words in his hands. And it tells us in Exodus 32, 19, that as soon as Moses' feet hit the base of the mountain, and as soon as he sees the golden calf and the people's debauchery, it tells us in his anger, Moses, rather than seeking to understand, rather than seeking to show grace, it tells us Moses threw down those tablets in anger, just obliterated them. There's a mess everywhere now. And we've all been there when we've seen a leader who has become physically angry. We remember that. It, 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 we lock that away. It's a mark on their leadership. Sometimes we ever truly lear, learn to respect them ever again. Moses had the tablets of God in his hands, but he didn't have them in his heart. He abused the truth. I'm right. You're wrong. And don't you wish you were a little more like me? Moses got the truth, but not the grace. It tells us after this experience that God is upset and ready to judge the people. But Moses has the audacity, the audacity 
to say to God, despite their moderating and abusing of the truth, he has the audacity to say to God, God, give us your presence and show us your glory. The audacity to say that. He had the audacity to believe that he could still be the mediator for the people. How could he possibly have the courage and the audacity to say that? It's like an employee who blew the work project and right after blowing the work project speaks to his supervisor and says, so you know that raise you talked about a couple months back, just wanted to see where we were in the process on that. The audacity. You see, (laughs) Moses knows God is angry. Moses knows they've all blown it, but he also knows that his glory will pass before him. He knows his glory will pass before him. Why? Why? He knows that God will forgive him, that God will receive him. How does Moses possibly know that? Because he knows there is a better mediator who would come. A better mediator who would come, who would hold together fully grace and truth when we couldn't. Who would hold together all reality in a way that is love. There had to be a fulfillment of truth. There had to be a place where the grace and truth met and God would forgive us. Whether we have moderated or abused it, Moses knew there had to be one who would come. There had to be a place where that would be a fulfillment. The apostle John writing in the very beginning of his gospel gives us a description of that fulfillment. This is what he says. And the word became flesh. That is Jesus and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John tells us this is the fulfillment of truth. Literally in the Greek clay race, it it, it carries with this idea that the cup being filled up to the brim about to overflow. Jesus is the fulfillment of truth, the play race of grace and truth. Back in Exodus, when Moses asked God to pass before him, it tells us in Exodus 34 that as God passed by Moses, he proclaimed this to Moses. He said to Moses, I will forgive sin, but I will by no means clear the guilty. As he's passing by, his glory's passing by, he speaks to Moses. We see the grace of God. He tells us no matter what has happened, you can be forgiven. No matter what you are going through, you can be set free. But we also see the truth of God. He tells us he can't just clear the slate. He can't just clear the guilty. Justice has to be rendered. This is why for you and for me, the ultimate fulfillment of truth is substitutionary. Where grace and truth meet. For Jesus to be the fulfillment of truth meant that he had to hold grace and truth perfectly together when we couldn't. This is actually what we see in our passage. Pilate asked the crowd in verse 13, he says this, and they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, why, what evil has he done? And they shouted all the more crucify him. So Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. Friends, don't you see, we have no leg to stand on before God. We have moderated the truth. We have manipulated it. We have spun it. We've deflected it. We haven't cared for the things of God like we should have. 
but we also have no leg to stand on because we've abused the truth. We've, we've hurt others with our words. We've, we've said things that we shouldn't have. And God tells us in Exodus, what he's telling us in our passage, there will be a place I will forgive sin, but I will by no means clear the guilty. In this encounter with Pilate and Barabbas, Jesus shows us the truth. He had to die for us. We've bent the truth. We've used the truth as a weapon. Where is my hammer? Where did I set that? God can't clear the guilty. But we see the fulfillment of truth is substitutionary. Jesus was glad to die for us. He loves us so much that he would take our punishment so that you and I, despite the things that we have said or done or left undone, can be released. Don't you see the fulfillment of truth is that the innocent one would take the place of the guilty. How much clearer do you think Mark has to be to telling us in his gospel what Jesus's death is all about? Jesus was taking our moderating of the truth and our abusing of the truth upon himself. He was taking our evil upon himself. Jesus died that we might live. How fitting, how fitting that the one who does not deserve to go free is the one released. His name is Barabbas. Barabbas in Aramaic, bar meaning son, Abba meaning father. Barabbas is the son of the father. The son of the father has been released because of what Jesus has done. He, yes, Jesus is the fulfillment of truth. And once you get that, once that gets in the core of your being, you'll realize it is the only truth you need. Our son Lane, uh, he's seven years old. He's our middle. He's our investigator, our engineer. He's got every question under the sun about anything right now. And he has a lot of questions right now about God, about spirituality. And so I spend a lot of time trying or not trying to answer his questions. Uh, One of his sample questions right now is, how can God hold the whole world with his finger and live inside of us at the same time? That's a good question. It's a good question. And my usual response to Lane is, wow, buddy, great question. Great question. I'm not sure I know the answer. A couple months back, we're driving in the car. He's in the back. I'm driving. And he's just kind of in the, in the zone. He's rattling off about five or ten at the same time. And once again, I'm in the spot where I don't know the answer. And I'd simply say after each time to each question, wow, buddy. Wow, Lane, really great question. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm not sure about the answer. And at some point, he got frustrated there. And he said, you know, Dad. For being a pastor, you sure don't know a lot. (laughs) And he's right. I don't. I don't know a lot. But I know the one who does. I know the one who holds all reality together. I know the one who makes sense of the world that I don't understand. I know the one that can take my insecurities, my hangups, my issues, my doubts, and I can look to the one who in grace and truth holds them all together because he's brimming over with it. He's the fulfillment. Have you said to Jesus, Jesus, you are the fulfillment of truth. You are grace and truth perfectly held together for me. You are the fulfillment of truth. You had to die for me, but oh, Jesus, because of your grace, because of your love, 
you were glad to die for me. Jesus, that you took my place like you took Barabbas's so that I could be a son of the father. Have you said that? Have you said that? The British preacher, Dick Lucas, um, was preaching a sermon one time and, and in the moment of the sermon, he, he shared about how God never gives us a watertight argument for Christianity. Never does. Uh, there's, there's not a watertight argument uh, that we can look to that answers all objections. It doesn't exist. It's not out there. It'll never come. But Lucas said, rather than God giving us a watertight argument, God has given us a watertight person. Look to him. Go to him. Find in him the life that you've been searching for. See in him the places that you don't understand. He can hold together in your place and find that he is brimming over for you and for me. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that as your church, we have a checkered history through the years. We have not loved you or others as we should. We have twisted or spun or grabbed the hammer to get our way. But cover us, but cover us in the fulfillment of truth. Cover us in the one who took our place when we didn't deserve it. Remind us of the depths Jesus would go to be the better mediator and enable us to be your image bearers who are being filled up by you with grace and truth. We pray this in Jesus name and everyone said, amen. Amen.